Nice. Great. Uh, hi, if you don't know me, I'm Joe Birch. Uh, I help lead one of our mission groups here at Mosaic South. It's called Beastenders. It's not the greatest name and I don't really like it. If you've got an idea of what you want to call that, you know, and you know, tell me, that will be ace. Also, we're looking for recruits. We meet on Tuesdays. You know, I'm happy to uh, sheep rustle, as it were. You want to leave your mission group, join mine? I'd like that. Okay. Sorry. Uh, so... Uh, uh, in my daytime, I'm a secondary school teacher. I teach classroom music at Abbey Grange High School on the other side of the city, the north of the city. <sighs> Far. Uh, in the nighttime, I'm a normal person. I'm not a vigilante. It's wrong to fight crime outside of the law, just to let you know that. Nice. As a secondary school teacher, there's a particular phrase in today's passage that really jumps out at me. It says, uh, a student is not above their teacher. It's one of those things I'm like, I'm going to make that into a plaque. I'm going to put it above my door. I'm going to wear it as a badge, maybe. You know, uh, you know, discipline isn't too much of an issue in my school, but I think you know, it's nice to keep people in their place, isn't it, now and again. Now, uh, today's passage mentions teachers, and it makes me think back to my time as a student. And I had some great teachers. I had a guy called Dr. Kent. This isn't Dr. Kent, by the way. Yeah, I, yeah, I wasn't born in the 1930s. Uh, Dr. Kent was a science teacher at my high school, and he would give out Smarties to GCSE kids, and he'd like label them up as kind of like brain pills, as a kind of placebo that we'd like, oh, we'll get clever as we went in. I ate every single one of those, let me tell you. Did all right, but there you go. But I remember once that he was brilliant at telling you off. And there was, it conceded, uh, we'd have to bring a lab coat in. And, and I'd forgotten my lab coat. And I said, oh, yeah, I was telling my mate, I've got to tell sir, I've, I've, I've left my lab coat at home. He's like, just do it, Birchie, just tell him. So I was like, sir, I've, I've left my lab coat at home. And he said, Jonathan, because that's my real name, he said, Jonathan, I'm so angry with you that you've left your lab coat at home that I'm going to eat chalk in front of you. And he did. Just ate, ate a whole thing of chalk right in front of me. You know, it's that moment like, that is pretty messed up. Now, he had a PhD in chemistry, so I take it he knew that it was okay. But uh, I, I didn't. But there you go. I had another great teacher, Mr. Hunt, who was my English teacher in middle school. And he'd do amazing accents in poems and stuff. And we'd just totally get absorbed into it. And uh, he really kind of turned me on to Shakespeare. Because we did Hamlet, and he'd have uh, had like a tally chart of all the people who were dying throughout the whole story, and like me and my mates, like, oh, it's that exciting, isn't it? Uh, and so you know, we loved Shakespeare because of that. But then I had another great teacher, I had uh, Mrs. Woodruff, who was my uh, music teacher at high school. She's such a lovely person, and in fact, she was probably too nice to a particularly lazy and distractible student who probably could have worked a little bit harder in his A-levels, but, you know, it turned out all right in the end. Uh, but my music experience was so much richer because of what she gave me. But in the passage we're looking at today, we're continuing to study the greatest teacher who ever walked the earth, aren't we? We're looking at the teachings of Jesus in our theme, The Genius of Jesus. And I believe that Jesus is better than any teacher before him or after him. But that doesn't mean that his lessons aren't difficult. And in our passage today, Jesus gives us some truths that are pretty difficult to digest. But he knows what's good for us. And, he's, and he knows that his followers need to be prepared 
for whatever may come their way. Now, let's read the passage together. Uh, it says, a student, oh, by the way, it's Matthew 10, verses uh, 24 to 37, if, if you want to find it in your Bibles, but it's on the board as well. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants to be like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more for the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, there's some really, really tough truths. And Jesus is, is not pulling any punches here. And so there are times when Jesus can be portrayed as meek and mild, a conformist leader who is just a little bit bland. Let me assure you, there is nothing further from the truth. Jesus is one of the most revolutionary leaders this world has ever seen. And if you need any proof, you need only read this passage. Quotes like, I do not come to bring peace but a sword. And anyone who loves their father more than me uh, is not a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my father in heaven. This is heavy stuff. It's always nice to get the easy passages, isn't it? But this is Jesus talking. And so we've got to do a little bit of work to suss out what he's trying to say to us. And so we're going to break down the passage into three key points. The storm before the calm. Whom shall I fear? And God is on our side. And so the first one, the storm before the calm. Instead of calling this the genius of Jesus, I propose we call this week the brutally honesty, the brutal honesty of Jesus. The passage we're looking at is the final section in a speech stroke pep talk that Jesus is giving to his 12 disciples, his core team of followers, and he's going to send them out on mission. And Jesus knows it's foolish to sugarcoat what they're about to walk into. What they're going to do is not going to be a piece of cake. They are not going to get a warm welcome from everyone they meet. They need to be fully prepared fully aware of the dangers and the hostility that they may rouse because of their revolutionary message. It says, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, 
a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be members of his own household. Jesus is quoting the book of Micah here. And the disciples would know this. And they would know how potent this language is, full of betrayal and animosity. And you may say to me, wait a minute, Joe. I've heard that God is love. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, right? Surely Jesus should be instructing his disciples about loving everyone, not bringing division. But the issue is Jesus isn't some blue sky thinking contestant on Dragon's Den. He's not naive to think that everybody is going to be on board with the difficult truths that he needs to share. Jesus is fully aware of how controversial his message is, but he also knows how important it is, how vital it is. Jesus knows that the establishment of the day are very happy with the status quo. Thank you very much. They don't need some upstart rabbi from the Galilean backwater telling them what to do. Jesus knows that the Jewish leadership will resist his, uh, his changes that he's championing because they will lose their position of influence. They'll be shown to be frauds who try to convince the people that they are God's representatives, but actually their intentions are far from God's will. And throughout his ministry, Jesus attacks the leadership of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, because their hearts are far from God. They pay lip service to God, but they don't understand him. And those who follow the leadership of these uh, Pharisees and Sadducees will also recoil at the teachings of Jesus. To commit your life to Jesus at that time, to publicly declare your affiliation to him was a dangerous thing. We only need to skim read the Acts of the Apostles, don't we? To see how the new movement of God revealed through Jesus that became Christianity was opposed by Jewish and pagan institutions because it undermined their authority and power. People who committed to Jesus were likely to be ostracized from their communities. Families could be torn apart by a member deciding to follow Jesus. Becoming a Christian could mean that your whole life was turned upside down. To follow Jesus was costly, but also it was exceptionally powerful. Why? Because you would only choose to pay the price of losing a complete way of life if it was true. You would only turn your back on those closest to you, or they would turn their back on you, or, or risk them turning their back on you, if you knew it was worth it. When I kind of read history books and I hear how Christians were mercilessly tortured and executed for their faith. It both saddens my heart, but it gives me hope. It gives me hope because they were ready to give their lives to something that they knew was true. They endured torment and shame because they had met with Jesus and he had changed them. And when somebody gives their life in that way, not bringing conflict, but taking on unjust punishment, it is a potent witness. I believe it is why the church grows in seasons of oppression, because people see that Jesus has changed the lives of those who follow him. So their values are not the same as the world around them. But the human leadership and influence is not the only power that Jesus uh, is fighting against. It's not the only power that's trying to resist him. Paul describes it like this in his letter to the church in Ephesus. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Jesus and his message of good news and his heralding of the coming kingdom of God is in opposition to demonic forces that want the world to be a place of chaos and pain and suffering. And as Jesus sends out his disciples, they are walking into a battlefield where there are many barriers, obstacles and traps that want to derail this mission of hope. And the battle has not changed. We who call ourselves followers of Jesus are soldiers in this battle. And we see the evidence of demonic forces around us. It's not hard to see. We see it in greed that leads to other people's poverty. We see it in institutions that promote prejudice and oppression. We see it in fear and distrust that leads to conflict. In organizations that undermine and devalue people. In a society that alienates and then leads to disillusion and anger. These are not the ways of God. These are not the ways of his kingdom. And if we let it, we can be overwhelmed by the chaos and the pain and the suffering of our world. We can hear the lies that Satan, which literally means the deceiver, tells us and we can start to believe them. We can start to believe that God isn't in control, that the chaos is too much, that we can't do anything about it. But these are lies. God is active in our world. His kingdom is advancing because we live in the now and the not yet. And that's a kind of confusing thing. But to live in the now, God's kingdom is happening now, but it's also in the future. Jesus has instigated his kingdom and he did it when he arrived, but the kingdom is not yet fully revealed. Jesus will do that when he returns, when everything is put right. It says in Revelation, and we'll probably come back to this a bit later, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Let's be clear that the battles that we are called to are nothing compared to the sacrifice that Jesus has already made. As the perfect leader, Jesus does not ask us to do something that he wouldn't do. Jesus is not a general who sends his troops into battle while never experiencing the horror of war. No, Jesus jumps in head first. Through his life, death and resurrection, Jesus has endured the battle, absorbed the worst of the pain and the suffering and striking a mortal wound on the enemy. Through his selfless act, we are free from sin. We're no longer shackled by the actions that divide us from God. The actions that we've perpetrated and those committed against us. When we choose to follow Jesus, we are not defined by the things that we and others have done wrong. But we are defined by the things that he has done right. God looks at us in love and sees the perfection of Jesus. Because Jesus has acted to take on the sins of the world on himself so that we might reconnect with our Father God. And so, whom shall I fear? Jesus talks about fear and he juxtaposes two persons, one to fear and one not to fear. And I think, and many other people think, he's talking about good fear and bad fear. 
Now, we might instantly think that fear is a bad thing, something to fight against. But I would counter that proposition by saying there are some things that we are right to fear. Some of my close friends know that I'm a cautious man, and, have been, and they've been known to mock me about this on occasions. One of them's not here, so I'll mock him. No, I won't. But there... But there's something also, yeah, some people are like, oh, I'm going to do this thing. And uh, it's naughtily satisfying, isn't it, to say, I told you so. Uh, But uh, I don't do that very often. Now, but let me give you an example of some things that are right to fear. Alligators. (laughs) It is right to fear alligators. Contrary to this image, alligators are not to be ridden. Okay? They are not your friend. Alligators are cold-blooded killing machines that cannot be reasoned with, and it is right to fear and respect an alligator. Now, heights, for another thing, I believe deserves our respect, particularly when falling from a height might result in pain or death. Now, I've recently returned from a family holiday in Mallorca, and uh, we rented a car, and my father-in-law said, oh, on the one sunny day, it rains in Mallorca, by the way, just a heads up, it rains a lot last week. However, the one sunny day, we went uh, in the car and my father-in-law said, let's go to Formentor. Now, has anybody been to Mallorca? No? Yeah. Have you been to, oh, to Formentor? I bet you have, Bob. Bob, cyclist Bob. Fearless Bob. I am not fearless Bob. Formentor is a lighthouse. It's right on the kind of pinnacle of uh, uh, the uh, the island, right on the northeast. And you have to go up this mountain pass and I'm driving in this high car. I'm already a little bit freaked out because they're like, oh, you scraped the car? 100 euros. You're like, great, let's, let's go up this mountain, shall we? And so you're going up this mountain. There's Bob just coming down the mountain. <laughs> and, uh, and there are literally like 300 feet precipices down the side. And I'm like, it is right to fear the side of, of, of this road because I want to keep my family on the road. Now, actually, I, I, I respected the road a little bit too much scraped the side of the car on the wall, got a flat tire and had to wait three hours to be picked up. So it's the right amount of respect. That's what I'm saying, okay? It's the right amount of respect. But uh, yeah, good times. But uh, yeah, that's right. We'll move on. But what Jesus is saying, he says, don't be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And in this rather blunt analysis, Jesus is pointing us to fear God. The message version puts it like this. It says, don't be bluffed into silence by the threats of bullies. There's nothing they can do to your soul, your core being. Save your fear for God, who holds your entire life, body and soul, in his hands. Now, but what does that mean? That idea of fearing God. Now, in the book, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis writes uh, a beautiful narrative, and it's really useful. And, there are, and there's a section where there are four human children, and they, they find themselves in the magical land of Narnia, and they're talking to beavers, as you do, because you know, it's a magical land. And they find out about Aslan, and Aslan is the true king of this land of Narnia. And the saviour of the story. And the beavers are talking about Aslan. And the, the children ask, who is Aslan? And the beavers reply, Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, says Susan. I, I, I thought he was a man. Uh, is he quite safe? 
I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, says Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is an allegory. It's a fictional story, but it's designed to point us to a true story. C.S. Lewis is retelling the gospel, and Aslan represents Jesus. And through Jesus, Aslan represents Father God. And I love that description that Lewis gives us. God isn't safe. God isn't tame. God isn't weak. God is our Father. The creator of heaven and earth has the power of the universe at his disposal. He can do whatever he wants, but his character is pure goodness. It says it in the first letter of John. It says, God is love. And this leads us to the kind of fear that Jesus is talking about. God deserves our respect. God deserves our honor. God deserves our adoration. This isn't a fear that is born out of threat of punishment. It is a deep respect born out of knowing who God truly is. Knowing how God feels about us. Knowing what God has done for us. The creator of the universe cares for you. And we'll talk more about that later. And so Jesus is telling us to fear God, but he's also telling us not to fear people. See, good fear shows us boundaries. It is right to respect fire. Be careful when driving. Look both ways when you cross the road. But bad fear binds us. Bad fear can leave us feeling that we're powerless. Bad fear makes every achievement feel worthless and every failure seem impossible to recover from. Bad fear prevents us from being all that we can be because we're so scared to fail that we never even get started. Bad fear tells us that we're only good enough if people say we are. Bad fear tells us that if we don't conform to what everybody else is doing, then we'll be shunned and we'll end up feeling worthless. Social media is full of people trying to find self-worth in the thoughts of others. With millions upon millions of people posting, hoping that they will find value in what others think of them. And living in fear that people will not be like them, will not like them. And we can get caught in that mindset that what people think about us matters. And in today's passage, Jesus rejects this completely. Now, we're not talking about whether people give you a like for a new jumper that you bought. Jesus is saying that people could end up hating you for following him. And, and that's a massive statement right there. There is a reality for these disciples as they set out on this missionary project that they may be on the receiving end of some animosity and it might get physical. Thankfully in this country, there is not much chance of being physically attacked for your faith. But sadly, this is not the case everywhere. When Eddie Lyle from Open Doors came uh, to, to be with us back in February, we as a church were made acutely aware of the trials of being a member of the persecuted church. But Jesus says, do not fear people who want to silence you. Do not allow the joy that you have received be stolen from you. God wants the absolute best for you. He wants you to be the person that you were always meant to be before the beginning of time. And the most fundamental thing is that we are made to be in relationship with God. Anything that prevents that relationship is not of God. 
And so we need to respect God, but we need to reject fear of others, especially when it comes to following Jesus. And let's be clear, this isn't easy. It can seem like it's easy for the other people, can't it? We can look at people in church and it's easy for them to uh, not to fear other people, but it's tough for me. I mean, I have difficulty, you'd probably be surprised at this, I have difficulty speaking to other staff members in a public sphere. I just think that they're judging me all the time, that I'm not good enough, that I'm going to be found out to be a fraud. But God is with us, isn't he? In every situation. And Jesus even tells us that when we need help, the Holy Spirit will be with us and will talk through us. In Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, it says, When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. That promise was for the disciples of Jesus then, and it is a promise for us now. When we're in situations where we need God's help, let's ask him for it. In this year of prayer, let's pray that the Spirit would speak through us. If we know we're going to go into a difficult situation, let's ask others to pray for us before we go to that place. Cover ourselves in prayer. Let's not be constrained by what others might do or say or think about us. Let's be motivated by our devotion to our amazing Father God, who is worthy of our adoration. And our final point, God is on our side. Jesus says, I'm not two sparrows sold for a penny. Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So so don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. God knows all about us. He knows how many hairs are on our heads. This obviously presents God with a greater challenge for some people more than others. But the sentiment is the same. God knows you. And God cares for you. Now, the idea can be thrown about a lot, can't it? But it's actually staggering, isn't it? The creator of all things, the instigator of the universe, the engineer of star systems that are billions of light years away, designer of all living creatures on the earth, even the species we haven't found yet, the giver of life, that person is interested in you, and you, and you, and you. Not just us as a collective, Not just because we turn up here and we say we're part of a church. Not even for those people who would declare themselves as Christians. No, God is interested in you, no matter your situation. Because like the best parents, God wants to be part of your life. God wants to look out for you. Wants to give you what you need. Wants you to shine in whatever situation you find yourself. Now, let's think of it like this. This isn't even close, but imagine the Queen of England sending you 20 texts a day just to check up on how you, how you are. It's like Ed Sheeran emailing you to say, saw your Facebook post, looks like you've had a tough day, want to pop around for a coffee. Or it's like Lionel Messi knocking on your door and saying, we're having a kickabout in the park, fancy making one in. These ideas seem preposterous, don't they? That these people can seem so important, so beyond our reach, so influential. But they're nowhere near what it means for the Father God, the creator of everything, to be interested in you. 
And I feel this should drive us to prayer because God wants to know. He wants to know what you're doing. I recently read a a book, uh, Paul E. Miller's A Praying Life. And it's a great book. Uh, It's quite a thick book, quite a lot going on. I got one thing from it. There's other things, but it was a lot of book to get this one thing, my takeaway. And my takeaway was slip into prayer whenever you can. Whenever you find yourself, wherever you are, pray. Communicate with your Father God. Because he wants to communicate with you. He wants to know. God is interested in all the aspects of your life. Because he's interested in you. He's interested in the small stuff. I am always losing stuff. My daughter will tell you, we were about to leave school. She's now at my uh, my school. And I was searching, trying to find my car keys. And that the leadership of the school were like, your dad's rubbish, isn't he? Just like telling her. You know, and I was like, oh, I can't find my car keys. And I got into the office and I just prayed, God, where are my car keys? And there was my coat that I hadn't taken. And it was like, you wore a coat this morning, Joe. Your keys are in the pocket. <laughs> oh, yeah, keys are in the pocket. And that moment, of like, you can say, oh, that's a coincidence, Joe. You'd have found your keys anyway. You know, those small things. But actually, I truly believe that the more I give to God, the more he gives back to me, the more he answers me. And the more I involve him, the more he wants to communicate with me. And so I'm really trying to pray first rather than the last resort. And there's this chapter in the book, and it says, How Personal is God?, where the writer is talking to his mother, and he's talking about uh, another preacher and his book, and it says, uh, We shouldn't pray for trivial things. And the mum starts laughing and she says, uh, how else would I find a parking space? And I love the idea that this 82-year-old woman who uh, lives in London and has to you know, kind of find parking space in London with her grandkids just lives in such an unshackled way because she's just got such joy from having such a close relationship with her father. And so in summary, it is this relationship, isn't it, that we are blessed to have. That means that we can stand up for God in difficult circumstances. When it feels like the world is against us, we must take our anxieties to God and share them with him. It is knowing that God is on our side that means that we can weather the storms of this life. Knowing that God has got us covered doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but we can continue to be open to him. We will be rewarded by his overwhelming grace that only wants the best for us even when we don't know what the best for us is, he does. And let us always know that our God does want that best for us. The proof is Jesus. His life, his teaching, his compassion, his honesty, his integrity, his humility, and ultimately his death and resurrection. And if God truly does care for us, let's respond to it and let's be driven to prayer. Paul instructs the church in Philippi, and he instructs us too. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to us all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guide your hearts and minds. Christ Jesus. I'd like to invite the band back.
And I'm just going to pray for us. Father God, we thank you for this message that you've given us that is challenging but both comforting, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that you treat us as equals because you tell us. You say, I'm not going to sugarcoat this for you, Joe. This is what it's going to be like, but I will be with you. And so, Father God, we thank you that you, uh, you have blessed us with your spirit, that when we're in tough situations, that you will guide us what to say. Lord, I pray for those difficult situations that we find ourselves in, in conflict or uh, with animosity. Lord, I pray that you would protect us and that you would help us in those situations. And Lord, I pray that you would spur us on to pray to you as often as we can, that we would remain in relationship with you, Jesus. And in that relationship, that we would guide more and more people to know you and into your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.